Welcome to part three of SuperThink, a joint for Black Portland. SuperThink is a nonprofit promoting a million acts of radical community gratitude. The following stories by Fanny Bell and Oz du Soleil were told on September 26th at Pensole Footwear Design Academy. Our first story is by Fanny Bell. Our next storyteller is a visual artist, a writer born and raised in Portland, Oregon, committed to the pursuit of justice and accountability for all people, particularly in support of future generations. Let's give it up loudly. Fanny Bell right now. First of all, I want to say thank you to everyone that's here. Um, over the last few years, I've done a lot of traveling, and um, one thing that's been very important to me is seeking out and connecting with black people wherever I can, and in situations like this where there is always a very unique kind of energy. Uh, and so I want to thank you for all of you who are here now for being here and contributing to that. I think it's supremely important. On September 15th, uh, my father, he closed on a house on Mallory. And then, this was in 1978. And then on September 16th, I was born. So I have this very interesting almost totemic relationship to my house. It's kind of hard to explain, but I knew every inch of it. Every inch. And I had a, as I grew up, um, I was a very curious child. I was always very tall. And I had, up until I was seven or eight years old, I had dusty reddish brown hair. It was very odd. It was a trait that had, um, kind of been passed down from my, from my mother's side of the family who were from Louisiana. So my daughter who is now seven still has, she has a, she's had a lot of strange hair since she's, she's grown up, but she now has a dusty reddish brown set of locks, which is very interesting. But when I was a kid, I liked to take things apart. I was that kid who my father would always yell at me for taking apart the phone or the VCR and trying to put it back together, but never quite putting it back together the way that it was. It worked, but maybe you couldn't push pause or something. It always worked, though. So I was always curious about my environment in the house. Uh, but I was always safe outside of it, too. Uh, I remember when I was in the second grade, I was in public school and I went to Woodlawn. Down, I used to walk down my street to Portland Boulevard. I'd take that right and then when I get to Union, I'd take a left and then walk down to Deacon and then take the right and then walk to Deacon and then I don't even know the name of that street that kind of goes diagonal all the way down to, to Woodlawn. That's what it is. But I never knew that because when I was seven years old, which is strange that in, my parents would let me walk to school at seven. Do people still do that? I don't think that's a thing that people do. But back then, it was because I was safe, and my parents knew that. One of my best friends at that time was a Vietnamese kid named Tuan, and he spoke enough English. 
but he was very smart. And we spent a lot of time together, so we would walk to school together, and we were safe, very safe. And it was fine. He was my only friend for a long time, and I don't know why, but he was just enough. It worked for some strange reason. Uh, he was very smart. And so for first and second grade, we were almost inseparable. And then I went to private school. Uh, I went to school at a private school uh, on 17th in Alberta. And it was called the Black Educational Center. I don't know if a lot of people in the room know what that school was, but, it just, but it's still there. It's not the same, but it's still there. I think now it's an Albina Head Start. And I recently visited there uh, after 25 years. On the inside, it's been remodeled, and the walls aren't in the same place, and the colors of the walls are different, and the kids that are in there are different. But it still felt like home. It felt a lot like the house that I grew up in. And I knew it was safe. Uh, that school was called the Black Educational Center because that's exactly what the school did. It wasn't confusing. It wasn't uh, a strange play on words. That school was in the business of educating black children, not just with their reading and their writing and their mathematics, uh, but in who they were as people. It was a part of something that was very present before I was born, a very concerted effort to uneducate black people and re-educate them. And it was very intentional, and it was very much about love. My parents were intentional about that. The teachers, black women, strong black women, were intentional about that. I was raised by black women, and my father was around too. <laughs> but uh, at the age of seven, eight years old, we were learning things about ourselves that we hadn't yet taken for granted. That's a very interesting way of, of putting it. We had not yet learned at that age all of the things that we were yet to unlearn. And so we were just accepting the truth. And I wouldn't say that we took it for granted, but it was just like breathing. But my parents and the teachers and everyone who was involved in making that school what it was knew that we would have to leave that school. And when I left, boy, did I leave. Uh, I went to another school on the other side of town called Bridal Mile. It was elementary school. From Bridal Mile, I went to West Sylvan. From West Sylvan, I went to Lincoln. 
It was a 45-minute ride on a bus, a lot of time to think. But I went from being in a place that was so nurturing and comfortable and educational and strict. <laughs> There's this one story I remember. Every, every day when we came to school, the first thing we do is we go to a room that was called the ideology room. And we would recite verses that still echo in my head in part. But here's one part of it. If I can remember. I wasn't planning on saying this, but... Part of this pledge that we would make every day um, would be to think black, buy black, live black, and be black because we are black. Every day, this is what we say. And this was uh, bookended by certain verses in Swahili. So we would start out in a tongue that we had no idea what we were really saying. And I think, I think what we were saying was the same thing over and over again, but in different Lang in a different language, and then in English, and then in a different language. But that's the part that stuck, that's one part that stuck with me. And that was in the morning, top of the morning, first thing, girls on one side, boys on the other side, and that's what we would say to each other. Teachers, Mama Nana, Mama Yoko on both sides, and they would lead it. And then at the end, Harambe, Harambe, Harambe. Seven years old. And then we'd go to study our geometry, our trigonometry, our our history of the Americas and our history of Africa. The grade levels weren't first, second, and third grade. They were named for African and, and um, African-American heroes. The first grade was, uh, was, was, uh, was, was uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was the first grade. Second grade was Malcolm X, then Joseph Sinke, and then I don't remember what the last grade was because I had left by then. But everything was steeped in this. Everything we thought, everything we knew, everything we heard, Red, black, and green. I didn't even know what red, white, and blue was for a long time, and I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> At lunch, we would recite, and I know this one better, and it started off in Swahili. The second part was, no, the first part was that which we are about to eat, we must nourish our body, bodies so we, can so we can continue to struggle for the liberation of our people every day before we ate, that's what we said. And then some more Swahili that I ran through Google Translate uh, and it says, it basically is Sifa uh, Sote Zinde Kwa, something, something, something else. But that means basically we are African people. And then I left and I went to Bridal Mile and I went to West Sylvan, and I went to Lincoln. And I was okay. I did fine. I was, I was uh, so far, when I went to Bridal Mile, I was already so far advanced in mathematics and in science, and in, uh, the teachers didn't know what to do with me. They had no idea what to do with this black boy amongst a sea of, of, of blonde and white faces who would ask the right questions, who always had the answer, and who for, 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 for the work that I was given, it was just simple. 
And then one day, something that I'll never forget, and I'm not sure why it happened, but <laughs> one day, after coming back from, maybe this is in the fourth or fifth grade, or I'm not sure where exactly I am, but I'm at West Sylvan, and the teacher asked, we're back from summer break, and she has us all stand up. And all the kids in the class stand up, they turn around, and they face the flag, and they start reciting these words. And I still don't really know what they are, but I, it, it's the Pledge of Allegiance. But I have no idea what these people are saying. And so and they, it's, like, it's like someone, there was like a, a memo that I had missed. And they started reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, and I'm like, well, what's going on? And, like, and I'm like, that's a, you realize that's a flag. Why are you pledging allegiance to that? I had no idea what that meant. If the teacher from, from the corner of the room, she saw me being confused, and she, and she goes, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's what I remember. I was like, why is, why, is she trying to like, get my attention? That's just a memory that I had. It was just funny. Because I thought she was like, trying to be down or whatever. I was like, well, I, I didn't know she was basically telling me that I had to cover my heart and say these words that I didn't know. So I, I graduate from Lincoln High School, and I largely forget my experience at the BEC. Things become more important, you know, I'm comic books and popular culture and music and all the things here that, you know, teenagers enjoy. And then I went off to college in Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts. And I then graduated from Hampshire College in Amherst, Mass, then went to Boston to start my life. I went to graduate school. I taught for a while. And then I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I had dabbled in music video for a while. I was working in film and television. But I hasn't quite decided what it is that I wanted to do. But I, I knew that I wanted to do something with all that I had learned, just like any kid who's idealistic and out of college and trying to figure out what they wanted to do. I, was, I wasn't sure, but I knew I, I was in Boston and I had, I, had, I had done my time. But for some reason, I couldn't figure out why I wasn't making it. I had done everything. I had figured I was intelligent, got this great degree, uh, I was industrious, but Boston, Boston was hard, it was cold, it was mean sometimes, but I gave it the benefit of the doubt, and so one day, I snapped, and I, I literally, <laughs> literally, uh, I had gotten a job offer from a, uh, a public media station in San Francisco, and I was gone, and that was it. I left Boston, and I, and I realized that what caused me to leave was the reality, and this is something that I think all black people kind of come to grips with or come to terms with at some point, maybe some sooner than others, but maybe others a little bit later. For me, it happened later, but I realized on the, that the day before I left Boston was the day that I realized that I was an American, and I hadn't realized that I hadn't realized that there was this dissonance between who I was on the, on the inside and how people saw me. And what my relationship was to a history that wasn't, didn't quite add up with what I felt like was true. 
and I had no idea what this dissonance was until I realized what had been placed inside of me when I was seven years old. And that all this time, it was protecting me from, from literally crushing me in my self-esteem, my sense of self-worth. And it was on that flight that I remember the voices of those women, the words that I said, and the feelings that I felt. It was like nothing that I had ever accomplished. Like my past and my future all just smacked together. And then I realized at that point, that was probably the only thing that kept me alive all this time. The fact that I knew where I had come from. I knew that I was descended from kings. I knew that I was descended from great power that no one ever talked about. And that, in fact, every day of my life thereafter, people were trying to destroy and mute. But it came just in time. Soon after, my daughter was born in San Francisco, and then a few months later, moved back to Portland. My daughter's now seven. She goes to a different school. But I realize that she's going to grow up with a different experience because the BEC doesn't exist anymore. But it makes me understand that it's what we need. It's what black people need to understand. And we're just beginning to reawaken ourselves to the reality of who we are. Ever so slowly and incrementally. And now we're woke again. But this isn't the first time that we've been woke. We were woke for a long time before this. This is nothing new. So I just want to end by saying thank you to the BEC, particularly to my mother and father, to Mama Nana, to Mama Yoka, to Ron Herndon, to Mama Joyce Harris, for creating this womb-like experience that kept us protected from the violence of white supremacy. Just long enough to send us out into the world. Thank you. Our next story is by Oz Dussolet. Three years ago, the 31st of August, was about two hours to the end of this 16-day road trip. This move from Chicago to Portland, Oregon. And I'm looking and I see the trees on one side and all this water and the sand on the other side. Never saw anything like that before and later found out that's what's called the gorge. And I'm about two hours from this brand new life and it is suddenly feeling real. Man, I got to start a new social life all over again. Find a barber, a reliable mechanic. It's all starting all over again. And my cars feel like it's gliding 
It's sliding right along like it hasn't been over this past 16 grueling days over the Rockies and everything. It's like the car knows that we are almost to home. And the first person I want to thank is Sean Bay Brown because he arranged for me to have a place to show up at. See, I didn't know anybody in Portland. So where was I even going to show up? But Sean Bay helped me out with that. And I pulled in to Milwaukee, Oregon, 9.30 p.m., 31st of August, 2014. So the next day, I got an email from Wula Dawson, somebody else I want to thank. She and I connected via Craigslist. She was renting an apartment, and I wound up not renting it, but she and I stayed in touch. And through emails, she says, you know, I'm glad there's more black people coming to Portland. So yeah, we stayed in touch. And this email that I got the first of September from her said, this Friday is first Friday. And it'd be great for you to come meet some people, you know, just be welcomed. All right. So I'm going to check this out. So go in to the trio nightclub, big old white facade outside. I didn't know it was a nightclub. I thought it might be a restaurant, but I go in and I see all these young black people and I think, oh, damn. Something bad is going to happen. But I'm going to go in and meet Wula. And there she is. She's greeting people at the front door. We hug, shake hands, glad to meet each other for the first time in real life. She introduces me to some people. And it takes about 45 minutes for me to realize, okay, I saw trouble through my Chicago West Side eyes. But after 45 minutes, I could see that these were some really cool, mellow people. And nobody's going to get shot tonight. So I wind up at a table with Lakeitha Elliott and some other ladies. And they're asking me about Chicago and how I'm liking Portland. And why did I move to Portland? Well, I was ready for a slower life. I didn't need the, the congestion and the speed, the, the grind of Chicago anymore. And when I had visited Portland back in 08, I like the blend of nature and urban. I stayed in somebody's house. She was in the woods in Portland, 20 minutes from downtown Portland. Wow. Yeah, I want to come back here. So, yeah, after five years of talking about moving to Portland, here I am. Finally did it. So they asked me about where have I been in Portland? I said, well, earlier today I was up on Alberta. And then the lady started talking. Could you imagine a white girl on a bicycle in that part of Alberta 20 years ago? Oh, no, girl, but not right now. All you see is white girls on bicycles. All things have changed in Portland. And so it leads up to also conversations about how Lakeitha said they don't like it when people come from Atlanta, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, Detroit, and say, you people in Portland don't have problems. No, no, we have problems. They might not look like Philadelphia, Chicago, Detroit problems, but we do have problems. 
we didn't get too deep into the details at that table. But what that left me with was I had a lot to learn. So sit down, be humble, sit down, be humble. But that bit me once. A few of us got together on Facebook and there was a conversation going on about the school district. And what looked like a bunch of opinions and assumptions and guesses that, you know, I jumped in and I said, you know, how do you know this? And the response was basically, we know this because we know these people. We grew up with these people. We've been to their homes. Oh, right, right. Sorry, that was my Chicago hanging out. Now, I'm going to turn around and put it back. All right. Yeah, because, again, this is not the amorphous, impersonal machine like Chicago can be. Portland is more intimate. All right. So I will sit down and be humble. But over these years that I've been here, Lakeitha has continued to be a great connection and a foundation as I build my home here in Portland. She's taken me to Oxbow, Rocky Butte, suggested different places to get different things and people to know. It's been so great knowing Lakeitha. And then I got the Facebook message from her saying that she had recommended I coach Superthink. Oh, wow. Okay. I've been doing storytelling and I've done a few Superthink shows and I feel flattered. I'm grateful. And especially with this event showing an appreciation of Black Portland. Wow, this is even more of a connection and I appreciate it even more to be involved here. So Lakeitha has been part of what I feel like home really has been. And I feel like that for the first time in my life. I drive around and feel like I belong here. You know, for so long, Chicago was a place to be until I could get to New York City. But since I moved to Portland and having gotten clear before I left Chicago, Am I running away from Chicago, hoping it won't be there at my next destination? Or am I going to Portland for Portland? And when I got clear, I want Portland for Portland. The chance to be in the woods 20 minutes from downtown. The slow pace, the mellow nature of the people. That's what I wanted. A few months after I moved here, I had to go up to Seattle. And since then, I've been to Toronto, New York, Santa Barbara, Amsterdam. And every time I come back, I really feel at home. But Lakeitha continues to remind me about the housing problems, all the people moving here, the traffic getting bad. And she says, Oregon is closed. So your friends, your family can come visit you, but they have to go home. She has deemed me okay. I get to stay, but my cousins, my sisters who are coming, they have to go back. And when I do come back, 
whether I'm landing in a plane or driving back over the bridge from Vancouver, I can hear Lakeitha saying, Oz, I told you Oregon is closed. Go close the goddamn door and not let all these transplants in. If you enjoyed this episode of Super Thank, check out other episodes anywhere you can find podcasts. Thanks for listening.